Welcome to episode 23 of the Untethered Podcast. Today we have Michelle Emanuel joining us. Michelle has over 20 years of experience as a pediatric occupational therapist specializing in the pre-crawling infant. She practices OT in various forms of manual therapy and private practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. She teaches and lectures internationally and developed the tummy time method. Quick disclaimer, all information, content, and material of this podcast are the opinions of the speakers and is for the informational purpose only and not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified healthcare provider. Welcome to the Untethered Podcast. I am your host, Hallie Balkin. I'm a certified orofacial myologist, feeding specialist, and mentor. This podcast is all about getting your questions answered and collaborating with colleagues to bring you the most up-to-date information in the orofacial myofunctional therapy, tethered oral tissue, and airway space. I challenge you to keep an open mind and join my mission to get this information out to the masses. Let's get started. Thank you, Michelle, so much for joining us today. I'm really excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you. Uh, let's just jump right on in and talk about some of the things that I know we both love to talk about, tots, tethered oral tissues, and let's just dive right into talking about releases and optimal timing, because I know that, you know, you've got a lot of good knowledge on that subject. Yes. Well, you know, optimal timing of release has been something that we've been talking about a little bit on the cranial nerve dysfunction and oral restrictions page for the pre-crawling baby for a couple of years now. And it's basically was based on determining what level of cranial nerve dysfunction a baby has associated with tethered oral tissues. So what is cranial nerve dysfunction? Well, it's not a diagnosis. It's a description of a functional issue that's going on as a result of cranial nerves not working properly, fully. They're disrupted, dysregulated, dysfunctional. And we know that for the best example is the 12th cranial nerve. That's the hypoglossal nerve. That innervates, means it controls all the muscle movements of the intrinsic and extrinsic tongue muscles. So it's pretty important with feeding. It's pretty important with ties. That's pretty key, right? Especially in this pre-crawling baby phase. So the tongue isn't moving properly. It isn't using good range of motion. That's not the same baby that's tied a certain way will have different mobility issues. There's so much variability, human variability, that a tied baby that has the same exact attachment to the tongue and the same exact attachment to the alveolar ridge will move completely differently. Some will raise up their tongues really strongly and you'll see clearly the frenum and the restriction in the floor of the mouth raising up. Other ones will bowl the tongue down, mm-hmm. okay? And it will actually won't raise at all. And so that's an interesting thing about whether the tongue can move at all and why aren't the muscles moving the same way. So that would be like a hypoglossal nerve dysregulation, dysfunction. Now, why is a good question. And that's where we figure that out through therapy and movement and other behavioral things that the baby does. Also working on optimal latch and nursing. So I would say, you know, there's three categories for me of cranial nerve dysfunction. It's like mild, moderate, and significant. There's a professional training that I teach for three days that you can learn how to do that in a more thorough way. But just succinctly for today, it's just mild, moderate, or significant. So if it's really, really obvious, it's significant. If it's kind of obvious, it's moderate. And if it's not very obvious, you know, that there's other problems other than the tongue tie, it's mild. But what I mean by that is a baby that has a head turning preference to one side, a baby that has a misshapen skull, a baby that's very refluxy or colicky or has the lateral C curve, 
any of these postural asymmetries. Um, but also a baby that's really dysregulated, meaning crying a lot. A baby that has difficulty being soothed. Um, all of these things are going to factor into that. And because you would, thinking about optimal timing of release, how do you know when a baby is ready for release? It's going to be based on these functional deficits or strengths. If the baby has very little problems with head turning and very little tension and very little uh, jaw clenching or clamping, and you can really see the front of them and they're moving their tongue around, then maybe they are ready, go right away for release, teaching the parents. Obviously, my preference is to teach all of the wound care beforehand. Yeah. Parents do a great job of completing wound care if they've done it before the wound is there. Mm -hmm. I agree. <laughs> yeah, and it's simple, but we often just don't do it or there's a lot going on, but it takes, pri it takes precedence and priority. Um, so getting them to practice that before, even if it's just a few days. Now, if a baby has significant head turning preference and they're arching a lot and they're crying a lot and they are having intense other issues, obviously, in their posture or their GI or their airway, we need to slow down just a little bit because release can often destabilize them and make it so that it's harder for them to feel autonomically regulated. And, and so instead of being a good thing, it can be really hard and it can be um, not good for them based on timing. So it's going to become more and more important as we identify what these characteristics are and how and what we can do to help babies still get better in that time period. If you're doing optimal timing of release, that could mean a week to two weeks to three weeks or maybe even a little bit more. But we still try to do it. As, it's still as soon as possible. Just it's just at the right, yeah, just at the right time. And so we're still trying to get them in as soon as possible, but at the right time. Um, we want to be able to have appropriate things we can do in the interim to make changes in the positive direction, because that's part of what getting a baby for release would be with getting them to do better with their movements. And that is always possible. I see that happening all day long, every day in my office. Yeah. And I, I would agree with that. I mean, I've had kiddos where they went for a release before they saw, they came to me and they were around three months old and there was no body work done. There was no pre-op. There was no, you know, they had, they'd been assessed, but maybe the family didn't carry out therapy beyond the assessment, didn't do any pre-op. They just went for the release and then came back after when the release was not the solution in and of itself. Obviously there was more, you know, yes, it was necessary, but like you said, it was not an optimal time for that child. And so what ended up happening was the tongue reattached. We had to go and do another release. But before we did that, we now had to undo months of all, you know, uh, we basically had two months worth of therapy leading up to the point of it being now an, an optimal time to do another release because we had to try and gain as much function as possible. We had to prep the family. We had, you know, we encouraged them to do body work. They finally did it, you know, and then we felt like, okay, this child is now gaining, but now we've hit a wall. We don't feel like he's going to gain much beyond where we're currently at. He's as ready as he's going to be now for the release. This is the most optimal time to do it. And it was incredible to me because within a week, you know, and, and they did get body, you know, they went to an osteopath, they went to craniosacral, they, um, they were working with me, you know, and I'm thinking of several different cases where this actually happened, but one in particular where within a week, 
the child who couldn't suck could now suck. And a child's tongue was living up at the roof of its mouth and, and the mouth was closed. And I'm like, you know, we have some other things we're still dealing with because there's other medical things going on, which is also why this particular baby did not advance, you know, as quickly as maybe they could have. Um, however, just like you said, just that optimal time of release is so important. And some people come to me and they say, well, if you do it within the first two weeks, or if you do it within under three months of age, or if you do, and I think we can't put a time like that on every child. We have to see, like you said, what are all the various, like, what are the pieces to this child's puzzle? And how do we, you know, what is their optimal time going to be? Because it might be just a week or two, but it might be a little bit longer. And yeah. Again, it can also depend on how old they are already and what we have to undo to redo <laughs> and right. up for success. So I'm glad that you said that and you didn't just say like, oh, at three months I do this and at five months I do that. And, right. you know, it's so different all the time. Now, what I am supportive of and not waiting is the, the scissors snip right at birth. Yeah. Whether that's the pediatrician or the midwife, mm -hmm. I do like that initial scissor snip, not with any wound care. Um, but just a scissor snip and maybe rolling a finger along the floor of the mouth to really open up mucosa, really just that. But that's a very easy to do procedure. And then that would be something I wouldn't want to limit or restrict because somebody saw it at birth and wanted to do that. That would be, that's really helpful. But always to have those babies followed up, not saying that that would be enough, that they're always going to that's going to be enough mm -hmm. to have good follow-up. But I would say go ahead and do that little scissor snip. But talking about a laser release or anything beyond birth and mm -hmm. the first few days of life needs to be strongly considered. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because we are making changes in the oral sensorium. This is our mouth. This is how we organize our whole sensory system. It's how babies make sense of the world. Mm -hmm. It's how they connect. It's how they survive and thrive. Mm -hmm. And the number one autonomic regulator is sucking, swallowing, and breathing. And when that's disruptive, and you know, it's sometimes one of those things, it's a slippery, slippery, slippery thing. Yeah. Because on the one hand, a baby can be really super impaired and super tight, but be with a mom who has a lot of milk and oversupply and good flow, and all the baby has to do is manage that and just kind of hang on and enjoy it. And then there's another baby who can't manage that and will, and, or, and there's supply issues or there's whatever. It's going to look different um, based on, especially the breastfeeding dyad, uh, baby's skills. And just because I want to blow this too, it's like, oh, okay, it's all right if tied babies don't nurse because we'll just bottle feed them. They don't do that well with bottle feeding many times either. Right, right. Yeah, we can't just pawn it off bottle onto bottle feeding. I'm not trying to say anything bad about bottle feeding, but we can't just pawn it off onto bottle feeding as if, oh well. Yeah, you know. I still get a lot of babies who come into my office where their mom's trying to pump and feed with a bottle because that's just where they're at right now. Yeah. And they feel very dysregulated on the bottle, and that sucks. Swallow, breathe is you know they're really struggling, and you know it's. Yeah, it's, it's not, I think people think, oh, let's just go to the bottle and, you know, but then there's also the mother, baby, the infant dyad, and there's just so many things to consider. Yes. Um, but I like that you said that because the bottle is not a quick fix. No. Um, and I also love how you mentioned, you know, within that first week of life, if we can get 
the release done. Um, it's funny because with my own child, my first one was released at two, which everybody who listens to this podcast knows. Um, <laughs> that was when I went, oh my gosh, I just took a Mayo course. I'm starting my certification. She has a tongue tie. Oh my gosh, I have a tongue tie. Okay, let's deal with her first. Um, and then I was, preg- I, I was pregnant when I realized all this. I was like, let me, you know, have the baby first. She's already probably going to be tongue tied too, because she's already in my belly and <laughs> she will deal with it when she comes out. Um, and so sure enough, we released her day five, which was amazing because immediately her feeding improved. However, she still had that head preference and I got very lucky where I didn't have a ton of issues with my kiddos. Um, but she, she didn't crawl until after she walked and she was on track for her milestones. So she would have been those kids who may have been missed, but I knew what I was looking for. And I noticed Mm -hmm. her neck was tight and she had a preference and mm-hmm. sure enough, when she scooted across the floor, she dragged one leg, even though her arm, she was crossing midline and she, her arm, you know, she right. appropriately. And, you know, it was just, some parents would think like, oh, that's so cute. That little scoot, they get there so efficiently. And I was like, oh my God, she's scooting and not crawling. This is not okay. Right. right. Um, yes. And thankfully I have a wonderful, we, we took her for PT and, you know, we did some of that and we made sure to keep her on her milestones. But after a while I was like, all right, I found a really great osteopath locally and took her and. They were like, don't do anything for three weeks. You know, we've kind of done everything we can do. I took her to the craniosacral person the week before. Then I took her to the osteopath the week after. And between the two of them, within several weeks, she was walking. And a week after that, she started crawling. And I was like to my husband, she's crawling. Yeah. If she can walk. I'm like, you don't get it. She's crawling like the right way. Yeah. <laughs> As a mom, well, I get it. Is- it, but it's so easy to miss this too, especially when you do release some of these babies earlier. So I think it's important for people to realize, even though the release has been done, we still have these other things we need to pay attention to and look for, which is why um, I'm so excited you're on the podcast to talk about it. Well, I want to say something about the head turning preference because that's closely linked and associated with tetheral tissues. Yes. So don't ask yourself, um, does the baby look tied because they have torticollis? That's an inside outside look. It's they have torticollis because they have impaired tongue function. Mm-hmm. So those two things are connected very distinctly. So if a baby has full use of their tongue, I mean, elevation, extension, lateralization, grooving, wave-like, peristaltic-like motion, ability to generate and maintain seals and has optimal oral rest posture, does not have torticollis. Mm. Okay? It's not. If tight in one direction, you wouldn't call it torticollis? If like every well, I'm just saying if a baby can do all of that with their tongue, yeah. they don't have torticollis. Okay. I've never seen a baby who can do all of those motions that I just mentioned Mm-hmm. Well, mm-hmm. and has torticollis. And that's because if the tongue is functioning fully, then the neck is functioning fully. Now, some babies had a lot of gestational constraint and movement inhibition and restrictions in the womb. So some of them do truly have like one shortened side and one lengthened side. But once you're out in the gravity field for three or four or five or even six weeks, you, you know, and the interactions there are what balances that and makes symmetry happen. And so it's about movement and accessing the nervous system too, which I'm really excited. Manual therapy is a really huge part of that, getting tissues sliding and gliding, helping us get over humps and bumps, encouraging us where to go next, you know, sensing motion and sensing the health in something and kind of fanning those flames. But what changes a baby and a child is movement. And that comes from their own nervous system, sensory input, motor output. And we can't take them to anybody 
for that. Well, an OT or a PT or sensory integration therapist, but that's what you act, they access on their own and their movement system. Mm. So we find that, that people who have tongue tie, tethered oral tissues have movement restrictions and also these compensations. Yeah. And that's what the head turning is, is a compensation. A lot of it's tied to the airway and the airway is going to be predilected on what is the tongue position, shape, size, tone, strength, all of that. So we want to get them to access more optimal movement patterns actively. And that's how we're then going to regulate their nervous system or help them move to regulate their nervous system. Yeah, that's a part of it, regulating the nervous system, but that's what's optimizing motor patterns so that they can let go of these compensatory strategies they've been using since they couldn't use their tongue. Got it. Got it. Okay. Or cheeks or lips. Mm -hmm. I'm starting to see a couple of babies now that have the really strong lower lip. So a mandibular frenum that's really tense and tight. Interesting. It seems to respond really well to really simple techniques like just jaw mobility and facial massage. Awesome. And so how does, um, how does your tummy time method that you've created, how does that all play into this then? Well, partially how it plays into it is that it was developed intentionally to help this baby, the baby with cranial nerve dysfunction, the baby with tethered oral tissues, the baby with lots of symptomatology around compromised oral function. So I developed it intentionally and I put, there's eight phases to it and five elements and assists and modifications. It's a whole system. And it is about being in tummy time. That's an important thing, especially in a back sleeping, safe to sleep culture. But it's also about autonomic nervous system regulation and resiliency. It's about co-regulation and it's about helping uh, babies be comfortable in all positions of their, in their body and helping parents be able to know what they're looking at and help problem solve for their baby so they can be more comfortable in these really important developmental positions. Mm-hmm. So yeah. it was developed for that and for this baby in particular. And I teach a two-day training on that for professionals. I, I really love it because I, it's not just about tummy time. It's also about just postural development It's about social nervous system maturation and engagement, which is really how we as mammals regulate our nervous system. Ultimately, initially, it's through ingestive vagal reflexes, suck, swallow, breathe, suck, swallow, breathe, and snuggling skin to skin to more pro-social cognitive aspects of regulation like we're doing, you know, through our voice connecting, facial expressions, and eye gaze. Mm Mm-hmm. And that happens around six months. You want it to actually. <laughs> yeah, but you see so many of these babies have, you know, it's, it's affected their whole movement repertoire. When the tongue isn't moving properly, it's going to have fallout all over the body. And I say to parents, when they bring their babies in, I say, if I can't find any symptoms around the body, then I'm, we're not looking at a tie. We should find things. We should find these little asymmetries and preferences and tense areas and areas of compensation. I'm not a big fan though, of just looking at tension as something that needs to be shaken out of the tissues or anything. This is tension is a nervous system engagement and how the baby is holding themselves in space. Mm-hmm. And usually it feels tense because they have a paucity of movement quality. Fascinating, but that makes so much sense. 
Yeah. So it's not just about releasing tension for everyone. I mean, that sounds good to us because we're tense. <laughs> but for babies, it, and, and especially pre-crawling babies, it's more about equipping them, strengthening them, optimizing them, generating new movement, novel movement in areas they haven't been moving, and doing it in gravity with the electromagnetic field. And babies are very susceptible to where they are in space and they have a plethora of movements available to them in prone or tummy time and they have a paucity in other positions early on but it's our desire to get upright and gravity happens in the first eight weeks in human offspring but the tongue is going to be a big player in how the head control develops oh yes yeah, that's why sometimes I get six-month-olds who can't pick their head up. And there's that major head lag when you, you know, put them on their back and hold their hands and try to help them sit up and their head just falls backward and you're going, oh man, okay, we've got, we've got right. the puzzle to figure out here first. Yeah. Right. Well, and we all know that these babies need more tummy times. So it's like, okay, just do tummy time. But here's the problem. These are the babies that have the hardest time with it. Oh, yeah. So that's another reason why I developed tummy time because you got to have a way to do it so that the babies like it enough to do it and the parents like it enough to do it. Mm -hmm. And so that we can also, though, push them in enough to do it so that it helps them. Yes, exactly. Right. So they benefit from it and the parents are not oh. listening to their child scream while they try to get out of tummy time. <laughs> no crying in yeah. tummy time. None. <laughs> I mean, babies cry for communication and stress relief. Yeah. That's based on the work of Aletha Solter and the aware baby, which I, I love that. But um, we're not going to be crying in during tummy time method. You know, it's, and because we can learn and in this zone of regulation. Mm -hmm. It's very OT-ish terms, but everyone kind of understands what that means. We've all heard, like, Emily, somebody's kind of coined that, like, zones of regulation, too. Yeah. So it's become more, more, I'm aware of what it is. Um, yes. I can't say I could teach a course on it, but it definitely has some, some experience yeah. with this term. Yeah, no, but that, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. Um, there, there's a problem now, though. I mean, we've heard so much as far as, far as it relates to optimal timing of release. Um, we've just been hearing so much like, oh, tongue ties don't even exist and certain people don't do them. And then people are saying they're overdone and et cetera. Most of this chitter chatter is coming about from poor timing. Mm -hmm. Babies that were truly tied who were released too soon and have suboptimal or subpar outcomes. We have a lot of lactation consultants who are helping identify babies, but then you know, we don't, we haven't really gotten it out there into like the mainstream yet about what optimal timing release looks like for everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, and with good intent, sending babies for releases, but they're not ready. Right. Yeah. And we need a more multidisciplinary approach and lens to view the baby because when I'm seeing the baby, like a lactation consultant might be seeing a poor latch and stuff going on and then I see a tongue tie, but I'm looking at the whole body, even down to the ankles and the feet and the pelvis and the turn and the twist and the responses and gravity and how well the baby's regulated or not. Mm -hmm. well, and it's, the isolated movements. Yeah. Sorry. And it's so funny you say that. I'm, I'm thinking about a picture that I have hanging of my daughter from her first birthday where she still was not crawling yet. And we, we do these meetings in my house where we meet with my local team. And so the osteopath was here and um, it's actually a husband wife team. They're both osteopaths and the husband has also a PT background. And he took a look at the picture and he goes, Oh, look at her foot and how it's splayed there in the photo. And I was like, cause she was trying to maintain her balance on this chair. She was sitting on where she didn't have her feet grounded. And I was like, 
Yeah. I mean, I was like, yeah, I did see that, but it, I was just like, oh, look at her foot. I didn't really go, oh, look at her foot. What does that mean from a full body perspective? And this is a baby who was released at day five, but we were still in PT going into osteopathic care at that point with her and trying to, you know, help her because it does, it affects the full body. And it's so interesting how that all plays out. And, and here's the thing too. I mean, the pediatricians, they get their clients back. They've had release and the mom's reporting feeding hasn't improved. Right. Right. And then they'll say, oh, yeah, well, it'll it'll improve in six to eight weeks. And the pediatrician's sitting there like, yeah, it would improve anyway in six to eight weeks is what they're saying, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're thinking in their mind. They don't know, really. Yeah. But so there's a lot of education that needs to happen. But we also need to be understanding of each other based on our discipline and not disparage other disciplines because they don't understand fully or they're not making the same decisions that we're making. It's really important to keep community, especially with those that disagree with us Yeah. because this keeps it open and transparent and keeps all of us accountable to what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And I fully know that posterior tongue tie is a thing in my sense, cause I see it in my practice, but when I see it as also it's an embryologic malformation, it's made the jaw small, it's made the floor of the mouth small, it's made the floor of the mouth maybe even non-existent seemingly. Yeah, right. um, it's made it so that the, the airway has weakness and there's, there's vocal cord dysfunction and there is a head turning preference. Like this is a whole system of things that we need to work through and um, needs to be seen in this wider scope. So that's another thing. And just as far as like rushing people off to release, it's for some babies, it takes a while to see the improvements because of the timing, but also because they may have lower tone. Right. And a baby with lower tone needs to be taken into special consideration because they gain strength a little bit slower. Yeah. And the sensory is a little bit more inhibited sometimes. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot to take into account. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, that, as well as other diagnoses. I mean, sometimes these children have, nobody's been considering what else might be going on beyond the fact that child's having a feeding issue. I worked with babies with laryngomalacia and they have clear airway struggles, clear airway issues. And is, and I, you know, yes, we've had success with release, but again, optimal timing of release when there's other things going on is so crucial because it can get a lot harder and you can move a lot closer to a feeding tube. If you don't really know what you're doing and you're not looking at the whole, you know, I really think you need to look at the whole picture. And I think, like you said, the team is important because I don't diagnose for laryngomalacia, but I can hear that baby with strider on inhale and say, Hey, I need you to go to the ENT or I'm concerned about, you know, what I'm seeing here. I need to go see a PGI or I, you know, we have to, not that we want to over-refer out, but I think that we need to consider that there is a team and sometimes it is a little bit more medically based, you know, with the GIs and the ENTs. And sometimes we can handle it, you know, with the OT and the, or the PT and the speech or the IBCLC or what, you know, and the, the surgeon or dentist who is releasing a baby. Um, but yeah, team approach. I think we all need to, you know, do our due diligence and figure out who those providers are that we trust that we can refer to who get it in our area. And if we don't have it, I hear so many people say, Oh, I don't have that person. We'll go out and find them. Educate, right. like educate those people, send them this podcast, send them, you know, right. that's why I created it. Like I want to educate so we can help these children who then yeah. turn to adults with issues. 
Right. And just because you don't have somebody in your area doesn't mean you do somebody else's role and scope. That doesn't justify that. And so you find somebody and build your team because this will make all of us better. And it will really help make a more scientific field. And the collaboration is part of the magic. I think these are total body things. We know from even the adult world that tongue tie is pervasive throughout the body and has symptoms all over and then tongue tie lands in everybody's lap a little bit differently you know we've we've changed kind of the terminology to tether oral tissues to include the buckles Mm -hmm. and lip yeah because the the connective tissue is going to attach tighter stricter in a less optimal way when there's subpar movements in fetal life Mm-hmm. these connections and connective tissues are laid down like guide wires for muscle, skin, bone growth development. Mm-hmm. And when there is suboptimal movement in fetal life, it is tenser, tighter, shorter, and there's not enough stresses and forces and movement to change the structure enough. Yeah. So okay. these are this prenatal oral dysfunction is not going to go away by releasing the frenum. Now, the less amount of movement restriction and inhibition and gestational constraint and movement problems that you had, the better you're going to respond. But when it has landed in your lap like that and it's affected your airway, your, your very breathing, whether it's affected how you perceive the outside world as dangerous or safe, whether it's changed how you can absorb and assimilate nutrients and eliminate you know, we need to look at the bigger picture and that the frenum release is, a, I always say it's the necessary 15%. Okay. At some point it's going to be super necessary. If you have restricted tissues, you need to be released. Okay. It needs to happen. It's the necessary 15% of the total thing. Most of it's going to be nervous system changes because these are motor pathways that have been generated through brain development. Yeah. And they're way more connected to muscle tissue than any other tissue in the body. There's no more neuroresponsive tissue in the body than the skin and the muscles. So the connective tissue, it does have sensory awareness, but it doesn't have near the type of sense as our muscles and our skin. And movement is not going to change just because the connective tissue is released. That's going to have to come from generating new movements. And it's just going to depend, too, how old the baby is, where they're at in their reflexes, where they're at in their spontaneous movements, where they're at in their active volitional movements. We're going to wrap up this episode right here and continue with part two in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you want to hear more of these Mayo Tots airway and feeding related episodes, be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or pledge a small amount on patreon.com forward slash the untethered podcast. If you found value, others you know in this space will too. So be sure to share this episode on your social media platforms and join us over on Facebook, on my Facebook page at Hallie Balkan Biz, on Instagram at, at Hallie Balkan. And you can head over to untetheredpodcast.com to grab a copy of the show notes where you can also also subscribe to be kept up to date on the latest podcast episodes. Big shout out to Dana McKay, podcaster extraordinaire for editing and helping me keep this podcast alive.